The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Boston Podcast Network, and this is Get Back to the Beatles. As that young man said, this is Chachi LaPrette. Welcome to our program. I'm here with our famous and illustrious co-host, Beatles professor David Gallant from Suffolk University in Boston. Hello, David. How are you today? How are you, Chachi? It's always a special day. I get both famous and illustrious. Yes, you get both today, two for one, and we appreciate you all listening. Like I said, on the Boston Podcast Network, David Yaz, our producer behind the board, and we have a very special program today. We are remembering the Beatles at Suffolk Downs. Uh, I was, let me see, in 66, I was 11 years old, maybe, 10 and uh, no, actually no. I was I was born in '57, Professor. This is why I have you to figure out the numbers. <laughs> so I was like eight or nine, or eight 10. or nine. Uh, yes. they, they they appear at uh, Suffolk Downs in August. You were born when? '57. In what what month? Uh, July. July. So you would have been nine. I would have been nine, but my parents are very Italian, and they were like, "No, we will not go see these be- these Beatles." So I was stuck at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not far. From Suffolk Downs, and today our program is very, very special. We have two guests today, David. We have, we wanted, I wanted to get the fan perspective, someone who was in the audience, and I wanted to get the performer's perspective, someone who was on the stage. So we're very, very excited. Today we are going to speak to a number, a couple of different people that fit that category. But first, uh, if you don't know, I host a show called Breakfast with the Beatles on WUMB in Boston and on Cla- and on Boston <laughs> Seacoast Oldies in New Hampshire and Maine, 92.1, 97.1 FM. And, of course, we have this little Beatle podcast. So we are brought to you in part by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And we're going to look back to that date, August 18th, 1966, one of two performances that the Beatles did on their final tour, or maybe it was from various tours, that were on in a racetrack. And this was a very unique location. It was a horse track, and they were right on. Uh, whether they were on the track or not, we will get that perspective from the fan that we have on the phone. This is a, a friend. We go back many, many years. He worked for many years at the fa- world-famous Daddy's Junkie Music, and I was friends with Daddy for many years. Still am, Fred Bermonti. And our guest was the buyer for Daddy's Junkie Music, and his name is Lou D. Tommaso. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Yes, you did. The retired buyer from Daddy's Junkie Music worked there over 35 years, has met so many different musicians. And uh, Lou grew up in Everett, Massachusetts, not far from Suffolk Downs at all. So welcome, Lou. We appreciate you coming on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, we wanted to talk to you because you were there. How old were you when you went to see the Beatles at Suffolk Downs? Uh, Let's see. I was born in 1950, so I was turning, I was 15, about to turn 16. That is the perfect age to be a Beatles fan, I think. That's true. (laughs) And certainly you're older than us today, which is the bummer. But if if you're 15 at 1965, 66, you're very well aware of the Beatles and you're very much into it. So... How, what do the Beatles mean to you? When did you really did, did you see them on the Ed Sullivan show? Give us the the story before Suffolk for you. Okay, well the whole genesis was my dad was uh, um, he was a chemist and uh, he had a very high pressure job and he used to have this little woodwork shop in his basement. 
and I'd go downstairs and help him. And the deal was I would help him if I got control of the radio. So this was October 1963. He's showing me some things, how to do some woodworking. And I'm listening to the old WMEX. Yes. And the drumbeat of She Loves You came on. And it was one of those moments where I just kind of looked at the radio and said, what was that? And that was it. And from that moment on, you know, in those days, you didn't have the 24-7 media crush. You didn't have Facebook. You didn't have the, you know, all this, the constant TV. So, you know, the Beatles initially, they were, they were a mystery. I don't even think I saw a picture of them maybe until a few weeks after JFK was assassinated. And by that time, I think we started to hear rumors of them being on the Sullivan Show. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you know, the, the radio stations started playing more and more and more of the records. When I first heard that song, I immediately went down to Norwood Records in, in Everett and uh, picked up the 45. I still have it to this day. Wow. And I wore that sucker out <laughs> did it have a picture sleeve no 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 it was it was on swan records this, ah, this is when oh, capital uh wow. wasn't you know buying the uh the the band yet yes. and so there were a couple of labels in america that the that the initial uh songs were which were primarily the stuff from please please me and all that period just before you know there was vj there was tolly and there was Swan before Capital started. Uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the first record that was released by Capital. Right. So, um, how much did the record cost? How much did the record How much did the record cost? 59 cents. Holy cow. <laughs> well, all right. And you got two songs. <laughs> and you got two songs. Good deal. So, after you, uh, after you, 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 you broke your piggy bank on that one. So, was this at a time, were you playing? any instrument this did yes this, well i grew up in a you know a, a good italian home and of course there the was accordion 24 <laughs> 7 i played the accordion and i played piano okay wow and now my dad uh played accordion and he also played guitar so when i saw them on the sullivan show that's when everything else took a backseat, and I wanted a guitar. So you had, you know, down in, in your dad's workshop, Every my dad had a had a basement workshop that we weren't allowed to go in, so we always wondered what the heck he was doing in there. So you're in that sacred space, and you have the ears to listen to the Beatles. You were also playing music or learning about music at the same time. And That's correct. And you're, you know, a, a teenage guy, and you see them on Sullivan, and maybe like a lot of other guys at that time, you saw the girls screaming, and you thought, that's a good job, right? Or something like it. Well, you know, it's funny, because, not, you know, after many years later, when I heard an interview with John Lennon, and he was talking about the first time he saw Elvis. He said the same said, thing. now that looks a thing, <laughs> like, you know, that looks like a good job. And mm -hmm. I, when I saw the, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was life-altering. It was that big band moment. And any kid worth his salt on that Monday morning, if he didn't have his hair down, forget it. So let me ask you, Lou. Um, my parents, dead set against growing my hair, they did not like the Beatles. Now, your parents, being music-oriented people, how did they react to the Beatles? Were they intrigued? Were they like, oh, my God, this is not the direction we should be going in? What were they thinking? No, they, th they, they, they saw it as a fad. 
Really? Okay. Yeah, they, they didn't think much of it. You know, I had an Italian grandmother who was watching the show with us that night, and she couldn't speak a word of English, and she kept... She was laughing hysterically. She kept calling him in Italian the four crazy men. (laughs) (laughs) So did you grow your hair? Uh, Well, remember now, this is 1964. There were certain uh, school uh, uh, laws. Oh, yes. uh, And, in fact, if the hair even touched the top of your ear... You know, they gave us a dollar to go down to Everett Square and get our hair cut. <laughs> so now that so, was it, it, this was Everett Public School, not like Pope John the Twenty Third or something. No, like no, that. this was oh. this was public school. And so what, I was in the eighth grade, I believe. Do you recall what your teachers thought of the Beatles? No, oh, they. Well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, the it, everybody was talking about them. Everybody, every kid saw that show. Girls, boys, everybody was talking about them, and and the teachers were kind of. I don't know. I think they were more patronizing than anything else. You know, I had a music teacher who kind of took a shine to me and, you know, he, he was kind of dogging it, you know, saying, oh, they're just a fad. You know, it's, it's crap music. You know, you'll get over it kind of thing. You know, you need, you need to be uh, listening to the, the greats, you know, like Chopin and all that <laughs> thing, you know. Because we had a previous guest on, Patty Gallo-Stenman, who said that she went to a parochial school and the nuns thought that they were not talented and they needed a bath. And so I guess yeah, well, I guess public school and parochial school uh, was a little bit different. Yeah, probably. But, you know, I mean, there was just this uh, this feeling. For, you know, it, 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 a generation gap grew from that moment. Yes. You know what, though? By the time they, they get to Suffolk Downs in 66, they're already kind of experimenting a little bit, right? So it, it's really <clears throat> not too many years. I'm thinking of, like, those first lines from... Uh, Eric Siegel's novel Love Story, right, which comes out in 68 or so, and it's like, what do you say about a girl named Jenny, that she loved Bach, Beethoven, and the Beatles? So it wasn't too many years until that generation maybe thought, oh, so a kid can learn and be trained and like classical music and like the Beatles at the same time, and the world doesn't fall apart, right? It's only made better for it. That's correct. And I so, loved everything. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're playing what you were taught to play on the piano, and then you hear a song like Eleanor Rigby, you're thinking, well, okay, they're bringing classical music into popular music, and uh, again, the world's a better place for it, right? Well, and my folks always, you know, they had all sorts of music. I mean, they had, you know, the Italian greats. They had the Mario Lanzas, the Jerry Vales, the Perry Comas. But my dad also listened to, you know, that sappy orchestra stuff like Montavani, but he also, you know, Mitch Miller, he had all that stuff. So music was in our house 24-7. So <laughs> I grew in a, a into a very pop mentality. Well, my, my father even embraced the Beatles. My siblings were a bit older than I was. I was only three in 66, but I was the world's hippest three-year-old. And uh, But, you know, my dad, it, what he played a lot of, he, he loved both of the great kinds of music, according to him, country and Western. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, Lou, um, who bought the tickets? How much did you pay? Tell us all about that. How did you hear about well, it? Were you excited when you knew you were going? Set, it, set the whole stage for us. Well, you know, it's funny because when you, you know, every year around the same time, I kind of go through the whole protocol and the, 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 the order of, of how it all went. And for somehow I missed the show in 64 at the garden and, and my parents, unfortunately, they're not here, but I, I, I think I was grounded. So I couldn't go. So now in 66, you know, it's a must. I have to go. 
so uh, there was a girl that grew up in our neighborhood who bought two tickets, and her parents would not let her go because two single girls did not ride the subway at night. <laughs> so, and she came from, you know, an immigrant family like mine. And so her father said, well, why don't you go with that boy, Lou? You know, he's fine. He can chaperone you. So she called, she asked me, and she made it emphatic that this was not a date. And I said, no problem. <laughs> I gave her the $5.50 for the ticket. Wow. And we got on a bus at the top of our street on Main Street in Everett. Ten cents took us to Everett Station. We got the Orange Line into North Station where we picked up the Red Line. I believe it was the Red Line in those days. I think it's the Silver Line now, and which took us into Suffolk Downs. And the anticipation was palpable. I mean, it was so exciting. And when we walked the, the, the couple of blocks to the, to the, to the racetrack, it was on. And so, it and, was and, and on. So, Lou, how long were you two married? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, the rest is, it, it was what it was. I mean, we saw Barry, Barry was first. He opened the show. So let me ask you a couple things. As you're walking in, Kids are going crazy walking in. There's kids everywhere, right? Trying kids to get in. everywhere. You get through the turnstile. The estimated crowd was 28,000. Okay. Because I still have the copy of the Record American that says 28,000 uh, uh, go wild over Beatles. Wow. Okay, so you, you go to your seats. Where were you sitting? We were sitting, if you're facing sta the stage, we were uh, about halfway up the grandstand stage left. Good seats or and bad the seats? Stage, the stage itself was not on the racetrack. It was in the infield. Okay. And what so we had a clear view of the stage. Good. The only problem, they were, it, was, it was a distance. And could you see kids sneaking, jumping the fences and things? Was oh, it, yeah. It was mayhem. Oh, yeah. It was mayhem. Wow. And um, could you hear them? Sort of. Now, remember, <laughs> the audio system in those days was relegated to what PA, the racetrack, was using. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine. And... It the only time we really heard anything, and I'm talking about the Beatles themselves, not the, not the opening acts, was when after a song was finished and the mayhem kind of got down to a dull roar, it was generally Paul who took the microphone and announced. And as soon as he finished, it was like sticking your head into a jet engine again. So did the Beatles, how did they come on stage? Were they driven on stage in a car or something? No, what happened was, and in my recollection, I think it's I'm pretty, I still have that picture. There were two DJs that seemed to be jockeying for position to announce them. And I, I want to say it was a, a Bruce Bradley from WBZ and somebody from WMEX. And... All of a sudden, you saw this shadow. There was a, a car that 
came up to the back of the stage and this shadow um, these these figures started to emerge and you could you could hear the excitement from the front as it moved back it was like one of those waves and then they kind of went around the back of the stage and up the side of the stage and that's when it just went nuts but you and you and you mentioned earlier that um the opening acts you had Barry and the remains they were fantastic. And who else was there? The Circle? Uh, Barry, Barry was the opening act, and he supported uh, Bobby Hebb. Uh, he supported the Ronettes. Uh, that, uh, I don't think Ronnie uh, Spector was there. It was uh, some permutation of the Ronettes by yep. that time. Yep. And uh, then the Circle came out, and they were, they were a self-contained band. They had a couple of big hits, Red Rubber Ball and uh, sure. Turn Down Day. Turn Down Day. Yeah. So when, how was the audience during those performances? Impatient for the Polite. Beatles? Polite? Yeah, you know, I mean, no, nobody was going nuts. I mean, people were clapping. You know, everybody was digging the music. But let's face it, <laughs> that's a tough act. It is a tough act. To, you know, to play in front of. And people, kids were getting antsy. And how long was the show, and what were your favorite? Do you recall any specifics about the performance? What were they wearing? Tell, give us any, any, other, any other things. It was hard to recall. see them. You know, whatever they were wearing, it was dark. Yeah. And I think, you know, from what I recollect, they were wearing, you know, suit coats, but I don't think they had ties. I think the shirts were open. Mm -hmm. and they were all matching. And, uh, and uh, kids storming the stage, being escorted out, things like that. Oh, uh, one kid actually got up on stage. And he was he was gang tackled by a couple of uh, policemen. We actually have that audio, and we'll ask David uh, producer to play it in a moment. But he was another uh, gentleman from Malden, John Lebinsky, and uh, he now lives in Las Vegas. And he was interviewed by a BBC DJ, Kenny Everett. And he oh, said, yeah. and he the said, famous Kenny Everett. Yeah, he said, I'm going to run on stage. Watch this. And Kenny interviewed him. I don't know if you ever heard that before. And, no. Uh, and uh, we're going to play it right now. David, do you have it? Okay, hold on. Here we go. This was from that evening at Suffolk Downs. What's your name? I'm John Levinsky. And you're a local here? Yeah, I'm from um, Malden, Mass. And you're going to leap up on stage right yeah. at this moment? Yeah, I'll try. Okay, there he goes. He's going to leap up now. He's on stage, and he's got hold of John. He's got hold of Paul. Now he's getting George. They've got him off stage right now. They've pushed, they've pushed him off, and he's been grabbed by all the police. What an interview. Woohoo! I bet this is an excellent. <laughs> they've got him by the legs and arms, and they're taking him off right now. He's being bundled in a police car. <laughs> Oh, boy, it's all happening tonight, friends, in Boston. <laughs> there you go. Did you hear that, Lou? We didn't know if you could hear yeah, that. Yeah, that was, that's great. <laughs> I almost expect him to break into all the humanity like yes. this Hindenburg. Is, is that the first time you heard that? It's the first time I've ever heard that. Wow. Okay, well, I have it. I can email it to you so you have a few Yeah, that's fantastic. So how many times through the years have you told people that you saw the Beatles? Because you are of limited company. Well, you know, probably, <laughs> you know, when I was, when I was you know, Especially with young people, yeah. you know, I, I you know I mention it to them, and you know, it, it now now that I'm at a, this advanced age, you know, I feel like a fossil, <laughs> because kids, you know, the, first of all, 
it's it's an you know there's a whole new generation of kids that are just starting to get into them and to you know the Beatles to them are just kind of a myth, right? Exactly. And uh, you know to have been actually there, you know, and seeing them and being there when it all went down is for them it's extraordinary. Well, it's extraordinary for me too when you think about it. You know, every record, everything that they did was better than the previous thing. It is true. Isn't it amazing? Do you still have your ticket? Uh, I do. Well, you see, Lou, that's, 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 yeah. that's key because, as you probably know, there are... Uh, if, if you, there are counterfeits. If, if you read in the Record American that somewhere around the neighborhood of 28,000 people were there... Uh, of course, if you counted the number of people who said they were there, then somehow Suffolk Down holds 1.1 million people. Yeah, right? exactly. Everybody <laughs> wants to say that they were there, and Chachi and I know some of these people. And and then some who really were there, I'll tell you something about those young people. I've been, I've been teaching them uh, the, the Beatles class for well over a decade now, and I actually first met Chachi uh, live at the 40th anniversary uh, concert and Beatles Day at Suffolk Downs back in 2006. That's right. And there were some folks there who were at that concert, uh, women who are now of a certain age, and they had T-shirts that they had made up and scrawled writing on them, messages to the Beatles that they wore that night, and they wore them that day. And some of my students, so I had given them an assignment, please interview some of these folks. They found these people fascinating and frightening at the same time. They thought maybe that the <laughs> clothes had never been washed and, and the people wearing them hadn't either. But the women are talking like, yes, you know, I, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a piece of the Shroud of Turin. They're basically talking about it in those religious terms. And uh, so it is, it is fascinating for students to hear from, you know, from those who were there. I feel like that's the old Walter Cronkite, you are there yeah. show as I, when I was a kid. Well, I am certainly envious because I wasn't far from there in Cambridge, and my parents were like, no way, uh, you're not going. And uh, But here we are with Lou DiTomaso, our guest tonight. And it's because of Lou that we have our next guest. And this is pretty amazing, because I've interviewed this gentleman many years ago on my Breakfast with the Beatles show when he put out the book Ticket to Ride, The Extraordinary Diary of the Beatles' Last Tour. Isn't that a great book, Lou? It's fantastic. It's it's it. It's far as I'm concerned, it belongs in the lexicon of great Beatle books. That's right, and we speak of because Barry. it's personal. It he is. was there. He was there. He was on stage, and he has stories of spending time with the Beatles in their hotel rooms. And he's going to be next. And I speak of Barry Tashin from Barry and the Remains, who in the '60s were the biggest band in Boston. People just loved him. And love the band, and it's because of Lou that we got him on the show, because I lost Barry's email a bunch of years ago. So, Lou, I want to thank you for connecting us with Barry. We want to thank you for coming on our program today and sharing your memories. And, boy, you're a lucky man, and God bless you, my friend, and enjoy your summer, what's left of it. And here we are, another anniversary of Suffolk Downs. Now, Professor, I need your calculator again. How many years now since 19... 60, I have a ticket right here, Lou, an original. 53. 53 years. 53 years. These, the ticket I'm holding is Section 6, Row 38, Seat 5, and it's a real ticket. Suffolk Downs, East Boston, and it's sad because when Suffolk Downs closed, I was dealing with management there, and they were like, Chachi, if we get the casino permit, we're going to bring Paul McCartney in for a big concert on the same place the Beatles played. They didn't get the casino <laughs> And the place is closing down, and I think it's what's it going to end up to be condos or yeah. something, right, Lou? Yep. 
Yeah, something like that. You know, it's it's funny, too, because whenever I go to the airport, I take C1, and whenever I drive by, I always look, and I, you know, if I'm driving my daughter, my son, who's ever going to the to the airport, I, I always say, I saw the Beatles there. Well, <laughs> God bless you, Lou. Enjoy the rest of your time. Uh, and, and I know you're vacationing somewhere. I don't want to give the location because well, no, we actually and... live here, so it's uh, oh, it's, okay. it's a place that my dad built, and we've been here for 61 years. We've just been blessed to have a place on the ocean. So. Well, good for you, my friend, and all that work you did at Daddy's with Fred Bramante. Did you ever hang out at his guitar-shaped pool at his house like I did? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course, it's crazy, right? And he had Elvis's I, car. Absolutely. He had Elvis's pink Cadillac too, didn't he? I, I, I'm still, you know, in touch with Fred. Fred and I still, you know, hang out on occasion. So. Well, I love uh, Betty and, of course, Candy, the family. And yep. Lou, thanks for good coming people. on. I, very Absolutely. good people. Absolutely. Thank you for having mm. me. And it's a pleasure. Thanks for hooking us up with Barry. And we're like a few minutes late for Barry, so I hope he's still at his phone. So, righty. David Yaz, please get Barry on the phone. Lee D. Tommaso, thank you, my friend. Thank you. All sir. right. Take care now. Okay, buddy. Take care. Well, that's Lou. He was great, wasn't he, David? With a lot of fun sharing those recollections. 53 years ago, August 18th, 1966. And our next guest was so excited. I'm really honored to have this gentleman on the phone. He was on my Breakfast with the Beatles show a bunch of years ago when he put out the fantastic book, as I said earlier, Ticket to Ride, The Extraordinary Extraordinary Diary of the Beatles' Last Tour. The great Barry Tashin is on our phone. Barry, hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. How's everything? How's everything out out there in in Boston? Oh, uh, everything is great. The weather's beautiful. It's summertime, and we happen upon another anniversary of the Beatles at Suffolk Downs. You are the famed Barry of Barry and the Remains, and I will tell you before we get into it. Um, on Friday night, I had a really long conversation with a dear friend. I've known this guy for many years, and he's a mutual friend of yours as well. Uh, and I was so honored because I've known this gentleman for years. He came to my wedding, and this is a guy I looked up to for <laughs> years, the great Peter Wolf from Jay Giles. Uh, oh, and, cool. And yeah, and we talked on Friday night at length, and he was so happy to hear that you were on our next podcast. And can I tell you some of the things he said about you, Barry? Well, <laughs> you know, it all depends on how you want your show to go. <laughs> no. <laughs> He was, I've never heard him like this. I mean, even with people like Mick Jagger and Springsteen, here's some of the things he said. I jotted them down on a piece of paper. He would not be a musician today if, he, if it wasn't for Barry Tashin. The Remains were the most influential band and the biggest band in Boston in the 60s. They had a professional level that no other band had, and this is all verbatim, Barry, they would charge the stage and just start playing. They were powerhouse performers. Barry had a professionalism much like the Beatles. And I said, as I said, if it weren't for Barry Tashin, he would not be a musician. Barry taught me how to put a band together. He helped me find management. He produced my first record with the hallucinations. That is some, uh, you know, really important stuff. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, Chachi, I would, I would live for such high praise from Woofa Goofa. Yeah, Barry. He's, uh, he's sure, you know, earned his own, his, his own rights for, for uh, us, you know, saying a lot of really great things about, about him. Because <laughs> Peter is just, um, you know, he's, he's, done, he's done it all. 
he, know, he is really done it all. He has. And he, he's still doing it. He's still doing it. He so. is amazing. He still tours, and he's one of the greatest front men that ever lived. But for him to say, he, he said to me as well, he said, Barry Tashin was my mentor. He taught me everything. And he couldn't stop talking for like 45 <laughs> minutes about how, yeah, yeah, they, how, important, how, no, how important the remains, Barry and the remains were, to Boston music, and he sends his very best to you, and I wanted to pass that along to you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Chachi. It's my pleasure, and I tell you, one of the greatest rock songs ever is Don't Look Back. I just love that song. It just bleeds rock and roll. But let's look, <laughs> let's look back, you know, because you guys, uh, you and your band members went to BU. And, uh, we sure did. And correct me if I'm wrong, you played virtually every college in New England, you were right. Re- you were regulars at the Rat, one of the historic <laughs> rock clubs in Boston. You played. At- yeah, pretty much they opened it up uh, for us because we were playing in the back room, and uh, the kids that were coming in, it was just too many to hold on the main floor. So they opened up the, uh, you know, downstairs, put a jukebox in there, built a little stage out of just some. You know, some wood and planks and, and uh, you know, I put a Budweiser sign up up there and <laughs> that was pretty much it. Well, let's start at the beginning. Cause I, and, Professor, you can chime in whenever you'd like. Yep. Um, and, Barry, uh, whenever, if you get edgy and uh, itchy and you want to, you know, end the conversation. If, in other words, if we go on too long, please stop us. But it started for you, and I heard this in an interview, and I think it's fantastic, in 1964, you were in London, and that's right. That changed everything for you. Tell the story for us. Well, uh, I, I would, you know, I right after my freshman year in school, and and uh, and uh, I went to London, and I I heard lots of really good bands there, but I heard one band in particular that was just fantastic, and they were the the reason they were so good was. They, they didn't just wang away at their instruments. This band, uh, you know, they, they paid attention to each other. They looked at each other and they played to each other. So they were involved in a conversation of sorts while they were playing. And it just made all the difference in the world. And all of a sudden I said, I can't wait to get back to Boston so I can, you know, bring this you know, up to my band, you know, and, and, and raise the, raise the consciousness a little bit about that. Cause it, it's what, and so when I got back, uh, um, Bill, Bill Briggs, it was a, uh, the, it was his first year in Boston. He was our keyboard player. <clears throat> Still is. And, um, you know, so I sat them down in, in the dorm and I said, listen, I got to tell you about this trip to London, and I I explained everything about about what was why I was so excited to get the band going because you know the year uh, the freshman year uh, Vern and Chip and I really had a trio and we were we would play you know once in a while but it wasn't until Bill came that we just really got the four piece going. And so once I explained this 
to them of what we had to do where you really pay attention to each other. And, you know, it was like this band in London, I, I think they were called the Regents. Uh, they, you know, they were having a conversation with each other. You know, that was the point. That's what I was getting at. And boy, they grabbed onto that. And that's what made the band. It really is. Now, are you talking that they had a conversation literally, or was it through facial expressions, through the instruments? It was, it was a, a musical conversation. Correct. Okay. So they, yeah. they, were, they, were playing, they were playing rock and roll, but almost treating each other like they were in an improv jazz combo. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a great little uh, combo. It's a little yeah. bit, a little bit side uh, topic, Barry. But you know, teaching a uh, basically a, a social and cultural history class on the Beatles uh, to freshmen in college. I get students from all different majors. What What was your major at BU? I didn't really have a major. I was taking a, a general course. Okay. Okay. And right. uh, and after two years, I we we I dropped out as as did the others. Sure. We decided to take a year off uh, from school and. Because the band seemed to be going so well that we just thought, well, let's give it a year and see what we can do with it. There it is. So, so uh, you know, after our parents uh, agreed, we we did that and we started playing more gigs. You know, we got a a real booking agent and everything. Then we ended up moving to New York and uh, playing at Trudy Heller's in the Village. Yes. And then we got on. Ed Sullivan's show. And now, hold, um, hold on right there, Barry. Now, was Ed Sullivan in the audience to see you? Well, what happened was, Ed, yeah, we were playing at Trudy Heller's. We played there for six weeks. We played from eight, eight in the evening to two in the morning. Wow. Um, um, six, six nights a week uh, for six weeks. Wow. And one, one night, Ed Sullivan came in and he came right up to the front front little row of seats and he uh, or tables or whatever they were and and he sat down and he was with his producer and with his you know other guys from his show and and they just sat and listened to a set and at the end of the set he got up and he walked over to the stage which was only you know about four feet away and. Said, of course, we we knew who he was, so you know we we were looking at him, and he he kind of said, "Come come over here." So went over. He said, "I'd like you boys to play on my show this Sunday." Wow! You know, and it was like, yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> you know, wow! That 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 wow. short notice. I mean, within just a few days' time. Well, a week. Yeah, wow. and. So right away, uh, Vern and I, our bass player, Vern Miller, got together and we wrote a song, which we ended up doing on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, which never got recorded, you know, by um, Epic Records or by Columbia, which was the uh, label we were on. But, um, you know, you can see it if you, you know, look hard enough online because it the Sullivan um, uh, video is on there, you know, somewhere, you know, and that's the song we played. It's called um, 
uh, well, what was that called? <laughs> oh, come on. We, we know what it is. What was it? What was it? It was... What was oh. it? I'll, I'll, I'll think of it. No, no. Through... Um, oh, no, I forget let too. Me, let, let me through. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Now I'm embarrassed. I didn't <laughs> know it too. Let me through. But isn't that amazing, Professor? In less than a week, they write a song... They get it together with the band, and they play it on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, give us some perspective. The Be- What did you think about the Beatles when you saw them on the Ed Sullivan Show, which happened before that, correct? Yeah, well, you know, they were, they were cool. I, I thought they were, they were very cool. So, you know, what can I say? Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are on the 53rd anniversary of Suffolk Downs. So Ed Sullivan sees you, you do the show and it's a fantastic performance and it's out there for people to see. And what happens next for you? How do you happen upon the Beatles tour? Well, that was two years later though, right? Um, Thereabouts. Yeah. yeah, Well, the, you know, the time sequence gets a little foggy for me, but yeah, we, we, cause when we were, we were actually at Ed Sullivan when we were still living in Boston. So that all happened before we moved to New York. When we got to New York, we got a new manager. And um, one day we were, you know, we were living in New York and we, we went to our manager's office and he sat us down and he said, you guys want to play the Beatles tour? Because I can get you on there if you want to go. Wow. Uh, this was a fellow called Bob Bonus, who had been kind of a tour manager for a lot of the English groups that had, had been coming over there in the uh, few years prior to this. Like, like he traveled with the Stones, you know, on several tours, you know, and he used to have to, you know, bang on the door and wake up, wake up. Mick Jagger and stuff. <laughs> We're still asleep in the morning, and they say, "We gotta go, we gotta go." Yeah, he was like the the man, road manager. So, so um, we said, "Yeah, yeah, we of course we'd like to get on the Beatles tour." And so, uh, except our drummer Chip uh, did not want to do it. I find said, that I find that amazing that you lose your drummer no. right before the tour. You know, he said, he said, here we are. We okay, so we played every college in New England numerous times, but we're still just from New England, and this tour is going to be the whole country and Canada. Says, and nobody's going to know who we are, and everybody's going to be mad because they all they want to see. See, it's the Beatles, and they're gonna they're gonna be angry. They're they're gonna hate us, and they're gonna throw tomatoes and you name it. That's that, that's what he said. And with that, he quit the band. Wow! Did so, now I know Chip. What can we do? What can we do? Well, you know, you, you, we, we, you you would do what the Beatles did, right? You're, you're about to get a recording contract, and they don't want your drummer, so you find another drummer in short order, right? Yeah, we we already had a recording contract, and um, well, to go on so the we, tour, we got another drummer, and we, you know, it was too late to back out. We were, we were on the Beatles tour, so we went out and did it. It was, it was, uh, what was it, fourteen cities, 
it, it took about a month to do the tour. It, it ran for about a month. And we, we uh, traveled in an American Airlines uh, uh, plane that was, you know, it was leased for the whole the whole uh, duration of the tour. So, so that was our like home away from home, and and um, you know we got to know it pretty well. Um, now, let me let me ask you, Barry, with the the advantage of all these years behind us now, did you ever regret going on the tour? No, I don't think so. Except. You know, when you're 21, which I just turned 21 just before we left to go on the tour. Wow. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, wow, you know, if we go and play with the Beatles, you know, on this whole, all these cities and everything, we're going to get to be as famous as they are. I mean, it's not impossible to, to imagine that you might have some thoughts like that in your head. Yes. If you're, if you're going on this such a fa fabulous thing you know and so you know we did the tour and the thing was the band was just was not the same without uh, our orig original drummer chip so you know we just went ahead and, and played the tour and and I, I really enjoyed it i uh you know i had a chance to spend some time with with, with george harrison and and a little bit of time with John. Um, I took, uh, we had a night off in New York and I took my uh, girlfriend at the time uh, up to their, uh, to the top of the building where they were staying. I forgot the name of the ho hotel now, but, and uh, I was gonna, I took this, an album with me. It was, for some reason, I was enamored of, of Tim Harden at the moment. So I was gonna give, George, uh, this Tim Harden album, but we got in and George wasn't there. In fact, the only uh, guy there was was John. So, so he said I showed him the album. He said, "Well, come on, let's listen to it." So we went in this bedroom, and you know there were like two beds side by side, and we sat on the floor between the beds. And there was a little record player on the floor, and um, so John puts on this album. And um, and he looks around. And he goes, Brian, Brian, <laughs> give us a joint, give us a joint. <laughs> so Brian comes in. He's all you know. He's got his tie on and his nice suit and everything. And he reaches in his pocket and opens up this, uh, this uh, silver cigarette case and withdraws this pre-rolled, you know beautifully rolled joint with, with a filter tip on the end of it and hands, hands it to John and he lights it up and we pass it around and he, we listened to the album, which he, he, he dug it. And, you know, so he, he kept the record. And, um, uh, then we just, there were a number of girls hanging around in the, uh, in the, in that apartment that night. Now, I don't know if John was married then or if he just whatever. But, you know, after the record was played and we had fun listening, he said, thank you very much. And I, 
I could just tell it was time for us to go, so we split. <laughs> so you smoked the joint with John Lennon. You told the story on my other show, and I'm so happy. I that did? Yes, you oh. did. No, but that's okay. I'm we, sorry. No, no, don't apologize because no. this is a new audience, and this was years ago we spoke, and I, I've always remembered that, and I've I've been told other little stories because, uh, well, in the book too, because I've read your book. It's such a great book, and uh, there's and you've had. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm, it was it was uh, ran out of, of uh, copies years ago, and I'm just in this process of getting getting it re reprinted, and um, so pretty soon I should be able to uh, put the book out again. Well, I, I think you should. There's a whole, there's so many new fans out there, and the book is really fantastic. And I, in the book, you always you spoke about your interactions with George. George is my favorite Beatle, and. Uh, the sunglasses story uh, is a good. Could you tell that one? It's a little story. I mean, it's a little thing, but it's very nice of George to do what he did. Do you recall that story, Barry? Um, yeah, I think I, I left my sunglasses in George's room one night, <laughs> and uh, I, 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 I think the next morning we got on the plane. I was sitting on the plane. We were waiting for the Beatles, and they finally came and came up the gangway and. George was walking up the up the uh, aisle, and uh, he had two pairs of sunglasses on, <laughs> mine and his. And as he passed my seat, he just whipped mine off and handed it to me. And uh, so uh, he was a he was a good guy. And later in California, I got a chance to um, hang out with him one evening and go to um, visit a bunch of different rock rock and roll people, you know, Jim McGuinn, uh, and Mama Cass and, um, you know, the, the photographer that was married to Mary Travers, um, um, and, and, um, so we had a, we had a, we had a big time and then we went, uh, got in David Crosby's Porsche and drove over to, um, the the Beatles, uh, it, I guess it was mainly their, kind of like their promotional guy, and so we walked into his basement and and there was John and Paul and Ringo, and and so David and George and I and this fellow just kind of sat down and. Um, uh, just for shooting the bull, and oh, that's right. Uh, Brian Wilson and Carl Wil- Wilson were there too. <laughs> and you're 21 years old. Yeah, isn't yeah. that amazing? And I was very quiet. I, I sat in my chair and just looked at the the array of talent before me, <laughs> saying, "Oh my God, <laughs> this, this is great." But you are an immense talent. First of all, so as a guitar player and a musician, what did you think of the Beatles' musicianship? George's playing. Did you, did you, uh, did you have certain feelings about how they played? Did you think they were great musicians technically with the guitars? Tell me how you feel about. They were. Oh yeah, they were great. They were great. No question. No question. Now I, I, you know, all that all that time they spent playing together before they went to Germany, and then all that time in Germany playing, you know, morning, noon, and night, uh, you know, it, it all stacks up and helps, 
you know. And by the time they got to the U.S., those guys really knew what they were doing. So, <laughs> so. Barry, you had a great a great vantage point for this because the outsider would would look at that tour or the Beatles in concert in the U.S. and elsewhere as as more of an event than actually a, a music concert, right? Because you can, we can talk about, you can talk about certainly firsthand knowledge of their musicianship and their real practiced and studied nature as performers, but certainly the concert venues and their playing in public couldn't have brought out the best in them, right? Because it was barely heard and, and uh, uh, you know, I think John had mentioned they might as well have been sort of Madame Tussaud wax figures out there the way that they were sort of carted around, especially, I think, on that 1966 tour when it started to get to be a bit of a drag for them. I don't know if you sensed any of that from them, because the thing that has always struck me and that I, you know, kind of explained to my students is that in concert, you know, they're doing a set which obviously is maybe built for the venue. Uh, the fans, some of the younger ones, might be screaming out for them to play old songs. I mean, in 66, if you're starting some of your concerts with with stuff from your set list from the 63-64, the crowd has heard Rubber Soul. They've heard the single earlier in the year, you know, a paperback writer in Rain. So these are experimental tracks, yet in concert, they're playing the very simple stuff that they can, you know, get the beat over. Did that ever strike you that, you know, their performing at that point was not really what they were in terms of what they were interested in musically. I mean, John has to go out and sing Twist and Shout, but he's listening to Tim Harden and Phil Oaks and whatever you've been feeding him, right? Yeah, well, I, I think that they were, you know, I mean, the, the way the show ran was uh, The Remains, Bobby Hebb, uh, The Circle, The Ronettes, and then there'd be a, a 10-minute break while they moved all the equipment around and then the Beatles would come on and do 30 minutes. So it was a short show uh, on the Beatles' part, especially. And um, I think they were just fulfilling the thing that they uh, had to do. And I think that they knew uh, but uh, weren't saying anything or um, they weren't saying anything to, that I ever heard anything about wasn't until after they left the states and i think it may have been on the plane once i read that that's when george just said that's it i'm not a beetle anymore yeah i don't want to be a anymore right right or or when they said that they had agreed they would stop touring i think his reported words yeah. were thank god i don't have to be a beetle anymore you know and yeah that transition and and one thing that that helped i guess inspire that Oh, you know the 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 rush to the safety, the sanctity, of you will, the the sanctuary of the studio, um, was that other dominant theme or story of that '66 tour, and you know John having and the rest of them having to publicly talk about the bigger than Jesus comments in in Datebook oh, right. magazine, and so from your vantage point, I mean, was that anything that? that either you guys had to deal with or since it was in a cloud in the air, did, were you ever witness to any of those press conferences? And, and how was that talked about maybe over a joint and a Tim Harden album <laughs> at the end of the day? No, it, was, it wasn't talked about at all. It, it just, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I knew, you know, what had gone on. Everybody knew what had gone on with this stupid thing on the cover of the magazine and everything. Uh, but, um, you know, he... Um, 
No, he was fine, you know, as far as just sitting around and listening to music and stuff. Um, but, gosh, um, let me think now. I mean, um, imagine having to go fine? through that we, with the press conferences every day. I can't imagine dealing with that yeah. in the afternoon in Chicago and then playing the ballpark yeah. at night. Yeah, he was. that was Chicago. That was the first show. So that was that was probably the most difficult one for him. I I just remember after we played um, Boston, uh, the next stop was Memphis, and that was the southernmost city of the tour. That's that was really the only southern city, um, you know, unless you call Washington D.C. southern. Um, uh, and um, I remember sitting on the plane that morning where we were going to. You know, we were waiting to go, and John came up, came on the plane, and he sat down right opposite me. Um, you know, and I, and I just said, you know, good morning, John. How are you today? And he looked at me and he said, "Ask me after Memphis." Wow! So it was on his mind. Memphis was a tough stop. A tough stop to make. Yeah, and you know, being, you know who I was and who he was. I, I remember these little, you know, things that, that, that they said. That's, that's the only reason I can, I can share them with you. Cause yes. you know, I remember the first day of the tour, uh, we got on the plane, the remains, and we were sitting there waiting. And, um, the, uh, Beatles, uh, you know, the Beatles were already on, on board. In fact, they were sitting at a table on the plane, and the the uh, flight attendant brought them some bowls of salad, and they were um, <laughs> just uh, about to dig into this salad. And I remember I was I was right across from him, and I was my ear was I was just you know just waiting to hear what are the Beatles going to say, you know? And um, so George is like digging away on his um, salad bowl there and he goes he goes oh they've given us the shitty outer leaves <laughs> and did you get that the shitty outer leaves <laughs> yes. the yeah. that's the first thing i heard a beetle say you know the the whole thing about the the tour is that it was always in a baseball stadium mostly all of them and um the crowd you know, was so loud just just in their the screaming that um, you you couldn't really hear the band. The, the the sound of the crowd was just unbelievable. It was just it was like a jet plane taking off. You know, just a just a. <laughs> you know, people always said on. that that the that they would uh, yet the crowd say at Shea would actually drown out the jets that were flying over Shea. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was absolutely nothing that I don't think anything like that has happened before or since. You know, they had these big voice of the theater speakers, like in a semicircle on the uh, on the infield, facing toward the audience. And Bill went out, walked straight out, and he just turned one of those voice of the theaters around and aimed it at the stage. You know, boom, the band could hear. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he did a lot of 
a lot of he was a lot of help and um and so, so with your drummer how did you feel your set was in the show did you were you guys uh, cuz you guys are amazing to watch amazing to hear and were you happy with we were, with the sets we as you okay. went along we were okay we did our job we did our best and um but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the same it wasn't the band it wasn't the remains that we knew and loved from the uh, early days so uh Really, what happened was that the day after the tour ended, um, I dissolved the group. And so for a good while, we never played. And uh, But there's a happier ending to the story because eventually Chip got back on board and we we played, uh, you know, over the course of, say, 15 years. We played a lot of a lot of cool gigs, you know. We went to London and Berlin and Paris and you know and played all over the uh, like California and you know places like that and had a lot of fun doing it. Isn't we that really amazing? enjoyed being back together. That is amazing. But let me touch on a couple of quick things before we wrap up. You were okay. on you were on American Bandstand when you were in the ninth grade. Yeah. Yeah, I was in a band called the Ramblers, which was <laughs> out of West Westport, Connecticut, and actually uh, managed by Mike Borchetta. And we had a, a, a single that was in the charts called Ramblin' at the time. And uh, I was, you know, like you say, ninth, in the ninth grade. And, um, you know, we, I just they just asked me if I wanted to, in the band i think they lost their original guitar player so um and said we're going to you know philadelphia to see dick clark (laughs) i said oh that sounds like fun so off we went and we went on this show and you know he never had any live performances on on american bandstand they were all lip sync and um so and ramblin was an instrumental so here's here's all of us in this band, like kind of playing like we're playing, you know, while they play the record. Isn't that <laughs> great? And then Peter Wolf told me a story. Confirm this, please. Were you the head of the Bill Haley fan club? <laughs> well, for West for Westport, Connecticut, when I was like. Nine years old or something. Yes, I was. <laughs> and he he said, "Ask um, ask Barry if he ever met Bill Haley. Did you ever meet Bill Haley? I did. I I, I went to a show of his at, at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. So I lived nearby, and and uh, they pulled pulled up in their bus, and boy, it was exciting. And I I knew all of their names and everything. And they got off the bus, and they got all their autographs and stuff. It was um. It was pretty cool. Now, pretty cool. That is amazing. Now, tell me, were your parents proud of you? Did they want you to be a doctor or a dentist, and you decided to be a musician? I don't think they were very particularly anxious to see me go into the music business. Um, I remember my my dad took me over to a friend of his uh, one day, and, and um, this friend of his was was in the music field, and, and I remember him saying. Um, how how hard a, a field the music business was 
you know, and, you know, it was really, it was really a tough business. And I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I heard what he said, but I, I sure didn't listen. <laughs> I, I had heard, after, you know, when I saw Bo Diddley at the age of 12 in my town with, with, with Jerome Green and I think his name is Frank Kirkland on drums. Wow. That was it. I knew that's what I wanted to do for my life, you know? And, um, so it, uh, it struck home and, and, uh, my parents were happy that I found something that I love to do, you know? And I, you know, still today, I mean, my wife, Holly and I just, uh, were down in, um, Fort Myers, Florida, um, the day before yesterday playing, um, playing a show, that was actually a fundraiser for an alliance for the arts. There's a beautiful arts center down there. And so it was a fundraiser for them. Uh, Our friend um, who lives down there asked us to come. And so Holly brought her bass and I brought my electric guitar and we just played, I don't know, 10, 11 songs. And in between, uh, Holly asked me questions about, you know, some of the things you're asking me, you know, and also, you know, what it was like to tour with Emmy Lou and, and, yeah. um, Grandpa you know, I feel, I feel good about doing it. And the audience just loved it. And, um, you know, I felt like, Hey, maybe we have a new field <laughs> starting out here. Who knows? But it was, it was great. And of course, play music every day for fun, not for money. And, it's just great because there's so much music in Nashville, so many great musicians and all kinds of music. This uh, was I was playing um, just this morning. We had uh, four four friends over in the living room um, playing um, some music from um, Brazil. No, not not Brazil, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, our friend Paul Anastasio made numerous tours to uh to mexico to to uncover some of these songs that had been lost they you know, were written back in the 20s and 30s and, and later and uh, they're just beautiful most of them are like dance things you know and it's just really fun to play all different kinds of music i won't carry on about it but, no no because uh, you know what's interesting you and holly do a lot of t- you, do, you go on tour together you do shows and I think that's fantastic. And I would love to have a moment with you to talk about Graham Parsons because you worked with Graham Parsons, which is amazing. And I, I think that I wanted to bring that up. Well, I knew Graham in Boston when he when he was going to, to right after he quit Harvard, and uh, he was he had his band, the International Submarine Band. There were a couple guys in that band that were friends of mine, so that's how I met Graham. And then years years later, he um, called me uh, in Connecticut and said he was making an album and he wanted me to be part of it. So I went out and we had Elvis's backup band, you know, with Glenn D. Harden and, and um, uh, oh, who's that great guitar player that played with Elvis for so long? Uh, 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 uh. He's from Louisiana. He played on... Oh, Susie Q. Uh, uh, Hold on. I, I'm just blanking on his name. But, um, uh, and and uh, that's where I met Emmy Lou because uh, Graham 
brought her out from the D.C. area. So Emmy and I sometimes sang harmony for Graham, and other times, you know, I just played guitar or whatever on the, the album GP on Warner Brothers that, that Graham did. Uh, and it was his second to last album because right after that he did uh, Grievous Angel album. And then um, he passed away shortly after that. Mm. And um, uh, But he was a sincere, sincerely music ran through his veins you know and he just he was he was a wonderful songwriter and you know a pretty good guy when he was when he was straight <laughs> well i would say that uh, music is through your veins and hollies because you have a very successful son daniel and you must be very proud of what he's accomplished oh boy daniel Woo! are, are we ever isn't that you great know, he, he, won, he won two grammys this this year with Casey Musgraves because he he produced that album and and uh, played a lot of the instruments um, on the record. I don't know if you have listened to the uh, record uh, Golden Hour, the Casey Musgraves. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful record. Well, and um, since then he's been doing a lot of other things. He he made a children's album with his three kids singing on it and wow. and he recently. Um, been writing and, and uh, recording uh, with Burt Bacharach. Wow. Um, Legend. Some I love Burt Bacharach. And does, uh, they, does your son, uh, how, how has he taken all the Beatles stories over the years, if you were regaling him uh, maybe when he was younger? You know, he's, he's, he's kind of immune to it by now. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't bother saying anything. Last time he he came in. He came here was um, a few day, days ago and had a bowl of soup and then went to the piano and Holly grabbed the bass and I strapped on the guitar oh. and we started play, playing like Chet Baker. Let's get lost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good for you. That is so great. And you know, because you, your dad with you and now you with your son and carrying on the tradition. And it was your dad that told you. Write a journal while you're on tour with the Beatles, right? And look what happened. That's right. That's right. And and so that was the uh, what made possible uh, to do my book, which, by the way, is called Ticket to Ride, The Extraordinary Diary of the Beatles' Last Tour. That's right. And it's, it's more than uh, just a, a diary. There's just tons of pictures in the in the book it's 144 pages and uh, um so i'm looking forward to putting that out again well i have my copy right here i love it it's a great book with your journal writings and and uh, different articles and uh and it's autographed to me for chachi a real beatles man best wishes barry tashin barry if the uh if 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 the publisher is worth their salt if it's coming out under the same imprint um you know, it, uh, Beatles books. That discussion it, it it never goes it never goes out of fashion. Some books may go out yeah. of print, but the topic never goes out of fashion. And you might catch this this next wave of uh, enthusiasm. I think it was uh, you know, Rolling Stone years ago when Retrospective said that every generation gets the Beatles that it needs, right? And so yeah. uh, I think the the That's world. It. 
the what the world needs now is more Beatles. I was going to go back back oh, there, right? That's right. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that it's it's it is it is uh, it's good timing for this uh, uh, for this volume to get out there again. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm just waiting for the printer to get it all together because uh, I I have the rights back now, and um, so you know it'll just be something that I'm doing myself. Well, and um, uh, ticket to ride. Ex- Maybe my ticket to ride. Well, <laughs> listen, when the, the next printing is out, I'll, I'd be happy to plug it and mention it on the show. And just to go back to a previous conversation we had, James Burton. Is that the guitarist? From James Super- Burton. There you go. Our producer, yeah. David Yes, pulled it out as we were talking. So, Barry, how James can... James Burton. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm saying... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. How can uh, listeners find you? You want to plug a website? Any shows coming up? For, for our fans and listeners to follow you, anything you want to plug before we say goodbye? Mm. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> right now, pot is legal, and people are buying pot everywhere. It's crazy. Life has changed so much over the years. Maybe he wants to just uh, know. you know hide quietly, you know, Chachi, and play Chet Baker. That's really, that's really what started, started the band. <laughs> After I got back from London, that, that's, what, that's what happened. We all discovered... We all discovered this stuff, and um, you know, it was just—it was a lot of fun. Just had a great time, and um, I, I really don't really have anything to say after that. You know, well, um, my my, we're gonna—it's time for us to go out for our walk. It's—it's it's finally cooled off a little well, bit down here in Nashville, and well, listen, and, um, you've been generous, you guys. Uh, I appreciate your uh, uh, asking me to be on the show, and, and um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, Barry, for having me. you've been very generous with your time. Please thank Holly as well. It has been an honor for me to speak to you again. I'm a big fan of The Remains. I know you've come, you came back to Boston. They honored you at the Boston Music Awards a bunch of years ago. You're such a talent. Holly is such a talent, and, of course, Daniel. And all I want to say is God bless you, my friend. When your new book comes out, let us know. I'll plug it as much as you want me to. And again, from the bottom of my heart, just the way Peter Wolf raved about you for 45 minutes, uh, I was just touched that you would call us back and give us your time today. So thank you so much, Barry. (laughs) All right. Well, nice talking with you both, uh, Chachi and David. Great honor. um, uh, Take care of yourselves and carry on. Thank you. Barry Tashin from Barry and the Remains and on tour all the time and performing with his wife, Holly, and don't miss his son, Daniel Tashin, a family of talented musicians. Thank you, Barry. Take care. Have a great night. You too. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was amazing. And uh, there's a couple of other things we want to do before we sign off. Boy, for the last hour and a half, two hours, we're going to make this into two two parts, perhaps. Yeah, Chachi, anytime we, we, we bring the past into the living present is fantastic, yes. you know? It is. And, uh, you know, it, I think maybe... Yeah, we- pardon me, Chachi. I thought you might enjoy just a little bit of Remains. Yes. Chachi, would... Uh, Don't Look Back have been on one of the Nuggets collections. It was on the Nuggets collection. But I also have here, I have two documents that refer to Suffolk Downs. And this one, uh, I'm going to read to you. It is a letter from Harold Bloom from the Tyson Ticket Agency dated 
December 15th, 1988. This is from a framed piece that I have at home with the complete configuration of tickets, of original tickets, and two letters confirming that the tickets are original. And the first one's from Harold. It says, to whom it may concern, I, Harold Bloom, was the box office treasurer for the Beatles concert hall held on August 18th, 1966 at Suffolk Downs, East Boston, Massachusetts, under the auspices of Frank Connolly Productions. The principals of Frank Connolly Productions were Frank Connolly and Gary, Jerry Roberts. The tickets were printed at the Globe Ticket Company. <laughs> I am aware that, the, that Mr. Roberts has the remaining unsold tickets in his, pres- in his um, possession. So that's confirming that these tickets are real. But then listen to this other letter from Gerald Roberts. And it says, to, him, to whom it may concern... This letter will serve as a validation statement with regard to the Beatles concert held at Suffolk Downs in East Boston, Massachusetts, August 18, 1966. I originally produced the concert along with my partner, the late Frank Conley. Our box office treasurer who was in charge of the ticket operation was Harold Bloom, currently the owner and operator of the Tyson Ticket Agency in Boston. The tickets were printed by the Globe Ticket Company. The remaining unsold tickets were discovered four years ago in a box in my attic in my Massachusetts home, which was in the process of being sold. (laughs) The late Bill Veck, well known for his exploits in baseball, was the owner of Suffolk Downs at the time. His assistant was Miss B. Furlong. We paid $1,000 for the rental of the entire track. We neglected to tell Mr. Vec who our attraction would be. <laughs> that was the, and in, parent, in capital letters, the last of our ventures at Suffolk Downs. I would be pleased to answer any questions that you might have relative to the tickets of the concert. I may be reached at, he gives a number. After January 1989, I can be reached at, and he gives a number. Very truly yours, Jerry Roberts. So they rented Suffolk Downs for $1,000, put the Beatles in there. And we're never allowed back into yeah, Suffolk Downs. Very interesting, Chachi. It sounds like, uh, uh, all due respect to our um, uh, uh, guru and spiritual leader, it sounds like the second letter was written by an attorney or that agent's attorney. Uh, I did not know that. I did not know that uh, Bill Veck uh, owned Suffolk Downs at the time. Now, the Beatles then would have played one of Bill Veck's stadiums, I'm sure, since he made his tour around Major League Baseball, whether it was Kansas City or Chicago. You know, Bill Veck, uh, responsible for Disco Demolition Night. Yes. Uh, and that mayhem. And and uh, so uh, he could have, uh, probably he parlayed it into a feather in his cap that the Beatles played one of his venues. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Uh, and then I, on a get back. Oh, Chacha, I have one more. Oh, I, yeah. I do on. have a, no, I have a, uh, I, I just came across another archival piece, a letter from Mr. Ed, who said he and the other horses were pissed off that night <laughs> in the stables. They didn't get any sleep. And he uh, ran poorly the next day's race. Now, you know, I'm an Ed head. I love Mr. Ed. <laughs> uh, and also on my Breakfast with the Beatles Facebook page, we had asked uh, fans of the show who were at Suffolk Downs to share some recollections. So I'm going to read a few of those, David, our producer, and David, our uh, uh, co-host here. Irene says, I was there with my sister Christine and high school friend Debbie. It was amazing, even though our seats were less than stellar. Paperback writer, Rain, two of the songs they sang, Bobby Hebb opened. Let's see what else. Oh, hold on. This one. Okay. Uh, Judy says, I was at the show. It was to celebrate my 15th birthday. My, dra- my dad drove my best friend and I to Revere. 
He sat in the pack the parking lot for eight hours. Claire and I screamed and cried the entire time. I have seen Sir Paul 20 times since then. I still scream and cry each time. Ken says, I graduated from Everett High School in 1966. Myself and three friends, Paul, Joe, and Don, drove to Suffolk Downs and we hopped the fence to be in, along with thousands of others. Elvero says, wow, only 575 to see the greatest band ever. Let's see. Sue says, I was there with Johnny A, famed guitarist Johnny A. Let's see, who else? Um, Touch, I'm surprised we didn't hear from our mutual friend, uh, former Boston City Councilor and a vice president at my shop, Suffolk University, John yeah. Nucci. Yeah, how come we Who also claims, of course, that he was there. I didn't know that. I oh, would have got yes. him on the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Keith says, I had friends whose parents lived nearby. They watched from their roof. You know, my, my daughter lived halfway up the hill toward the shrine on Waldemar. Oh, really? And so when I, we'd visit her, we'd get off at the Suffolk Downs stop, and she was interviewed the last time that um, Suffolk Downs was about to close, about, mm-hmm. I don't know, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, her picture is there. She's coming out of the uh, uh, the Shaw's, so the supermarket near uh, Suffolk Downs, pushing a cart, and they have a picture of her in the Boston Globe. And she says, well, it'd be sad. This is a historic place. The Beatles played here. And that's how that Boston Globe article ended. And I think it, I don't know if she was wearing it in the photograph. Probably not. But she had at least a couple of Breakfast with the Beatles t-shirts. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> okay, here's Richie. I know this guy, Richie from East Boston. Yes, I took the bus from Maverick Station, got off at Orient Heights, jam-packed, walked around the track, climbed the fence, Boston cops walking around with flashlights starting to chase us. We snuck in and just mingled into the crowd. I got up front and watched them approach the stage, started to play, people screaming, couldn't even hear them. Um, found a ticket stub on the ground and I framed it. The greatest memory I'll always cherish. So blessed to see the greatest band of all time. Chachi, I, I uh, fail you to remember here if our dear friend, uh, East Boston native Roy Antonuccio, saw the Beatles at Suffolk Downs. He did so not. He was too young, maybe. I think he may have been too young. Yeah. Cindy says, I was there with Mary Ann and Bev. We were lifted over the fence because I was on crutches. I was afraid of being crushed. Oh, so she was in the audience. They pulled her over the fence so she wouldn't get crushed because she was on crutches. So crutches came to her aid as an advantage. We watched from the ground in front of the stage. I was interviewed on the 11 o'clock news and Channel 4 WBZ. Wow. (laughs) Let's see. Um, Eve says, I was there with my best friend Rachel. We were 14. We thought our life was complete. His Lou even posted something. I was there. We got our tickets at Jordan Marsh, hopped on the bus in Everett, took us to Everett Station, Orange Line to North Station. He had already told that. Yep. Uh, Francis, my mom, drove us to some location where we could see the lit up stage. Let's see. Um, uh, my brother and I were too young, but my mother stood in line and bought two tickets for my brother and a friend, but she took the tickets herself. She, <laughs> saw, she saw Elvis live too. Her memory was that George's shoe was untied. <laughs> okay. Uh, Andrea, I was there with my older brother. I remember standing on my chair screaming through the whole show. Um, let's see. I didn't think Beetle Boots had shoes, uh, uh, laces. Maybe That's they weren't. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe that, but <laughs> who knows? Um, Paul says, I was there. My dad took me and my brother. I was 11. I can remember standing on my seat, not being able to see or hear for all the screaming. Somehow we ended up in the stands we, and could see and hear at the end of the show a girl was sobbing 
and wouldn't let go of the railing. Her parents were trying to get her to go home. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. There's some recollections on our Breakfast with the Beatles Facebook page. You can find that Breakfast with the Beatles Chachi. So Facebook.com slash Breakfast with the Beatles Chachi. What an interesting podcast today, remembering Suffolk Downs. Very interesting, Chachi. I mean, we are... Uh, it, when its demise is complete, we will have lost both venues where the Beatles played in Boston. It's very sad. It's very sad. Although Boston Garden is, it's the new Boston Garden, but it no longer exists as we knew it back then in 1964. I want to thank Barry Tashin for taking the time. Um, uh, it was an hour or so we talked to him, and uh, we really appreciate him coming on the podcast. And of course, Lee Alou Di Tommaso for coming on. And so we'll wrap up this edition. But first, I want to tell you about our show. We have a big show coming up called The Magical History Tour, Something New, A Beatles Experience. It's two hours of stories, unseen footage, newly discovered sound from the Fab Four. It will be me, Chachi Lepret, along with Beatles film archivist. This guy is an amazing guy. He has such a collection of film that no one has ever seen. Mr. Eric Taros at the Regent Theater on Medford Street, Arlington, Massachusetts, Friday, October 18th at 8 o'clock. Tickets are on sale now, regentheater.com, $25. And uh, there's a special $40 ticket, and you get some extra added goodies. So if you want to check us out and come to the show, I'm telling you, it's films and conversation you've never seen before. The films are truly amazing. Chachi, I will, I will be there with about 10 to 15 of my students, and if any of our podcast listeners want to seek me out and say hello I, I will i will give them personal greetings that's very good mr david gallant how are things going are you back in session soon uh, at suffolk university s- where you teach the beatles class soon we are and uh, i'm putting some uh, uh final touches on my syllabus changing a few things around and uh we are uh, we're, we're just about uh, ready to go right after labor day fantastic well i would like to be a guest uh, this year i know i missed the last year or two and i want to come back and and do that with you. And uh, coming up in our next podcast, we're going to be doing an Abbey Road thing. And we're going to be doing a film uh, discussion uh, podcast going over films like Yesterday and Across the Universe and, and some others uh, relating to the Beatles. And uh, if you have any uh, comments, questions, you can go to our show's Facebook page. But it's Breakfast with the Beatles show. And uh, you can also uh, get in touch with me at um, G. I can't remember the email address, <laughs> but you'll find us. Come and look for us. It's, this is called Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network and uh, lots of fine podcasts on our network. Mr. David Yaz, our producer, everything go okay? Yes, uh, Charge. Uh, m- my deepest apologies about the technical problems. We had a few technical problems, but you can edit that out as well as this uh, conversation. You know, Chachi, in honor, <laughs> I think we're, we're in uh, around the same time as the anniversary of the Suffolk Down show. It'll be 50 years uh, since uh, the Beatles walked across Abbey Road for their photo shoot for That's the album correct. cover. So if people want to, in honor of that, uh, kick off their flip-flops and... Uh, Walk across the road. Please look both ways before you do so. It was a hot day, so I took off my flip-flops. It's a hot day. That's why you're wearing flip-flops. That's all it is. Yeah, well, it is a, um, it's a landmark now just because four guys cross the street. I've been there, and there's a live webcam 24, 24 hours. hours a day. Just Google Abbey Road webcam, and you can always see people making that famed walk across the street. Now, when I did it, I did it at night. Danny Bennett, son of Tony Bennett, was with me. He snapped a picture. And it never really came out, so I don't really have a picture to commemorate that. But uh, I was at Studio 2 with Tony and Danny, and that was truly 
an amazing experience. Again, so, look both ways before crossing. You just have to look right first. Yes. Don't look back. <laughs> That's a little Barry Tashin comment. Thanks, so thanks, Barry. Thanks, Lou, for calling in. Thank you, gentlemen. David Galat, David Yaz. We'll see you here next time on Get Back to the Beatles. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lepret at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.